Al Jazeera podcast. Divided and embroiled in a civil war, Libya is hit by devastating floods. Thousands are dead and thousands more missing. How will the country deal with this disaster? And how are political rivalries affecting rescue operations? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In Tripoli is Salah El Bakush, political analyst and former senior advisor to both the negotiating team in the High Council of States and the Libyan government in the National Accord. In Tunis is Anas El Gomati, founder and director of Sadiq Institute, the first public policy think tank in Libya. And also in Tripoli is Michele Servide, UNICEF representative for Libya. A warm welcome to you all. Thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Michele, let me start with you today. What have you and your colleagues learned about the scale of the devastation thus far? And, and do we have any clearer picture when it comes to the magnitude of this disaster? Yes, yeah, so when we started getting reports in the morning uh, yesterday, was, uh, it didn't look like this scale. Uh, we had 20 to 50 deaths and a few displaced, but then the reports started coming from the remote areas and from Derna specifically, and there where the figures became really high. Now we are talking about between 2,000 and 5,000 deaths. Today, the latest is 5,000. We talk about 20 to 30,000 displaced in Derna alone. Derna is the, the town that has been mostly affected. We are talking about, you know, several uh, hundreds displaced also in, uh, in Benghazi and other areas. So the magnitude, the scale of this disaster is much, much higher than what was in the early hours of, of yesterday. And Derna specifically uh, hit, has been hit. Uh, apparently, two dams have been have collapsed. So that's that's where the efforts are now. In Benghazi, the situation seems a bit calmer, uh, but the area affected is very, very large. Uh, and Michele, if, if I could ask you specifically about what you and your colleagues have been able to do uh, thus far, whether it's in Derna or or other cities or other areas uh, inside Libya, has aid actually been able to reach any of those hardest hit areas as of yet? So we are working with our partner, the Libya, the Libya Red Crescent, to do uh, major assessments. That's uh, this phase now. We send supplies from uh, Tripoli, so they are now reaching uh, Benghazi, and then they will be dispatched today. We send some medical supplies for 10,000 people, uh, hygiene kits for over 1,000 people, and some clothing kits. But this is a drop in the ocean compared to you know the needs on the ground. So. There will be also a UN interagency mission. Uh, of course, the teams of the Red Crescent and some local partners are on the ground, so we count on them also for the initial assessment. But there will be a UN interagency assessment in the coming days. Um, the situation is critical because of the numbers we talked about. I mean, the number of displaced are really high. The number of missing people are high. And so we expect also high levels of family separations, high level of shelter needs, you know, water system to be rehabilitated. So the scale is is really uh, tremendous. Uh, Michele, I just want to also ask you, when you talk about the scale of this right now, I mean, how much concern is there at this moment that uh, the number of dead, that the number of missing, uh, that the number of displaced may rise uh, exponentially, may rise that much more in the days ahead? So the number of missing people is what is concerning because it was quite high. Uh, yesterday, the authorities were talking about 10,000 people. So that's the really concerning thing. 
it's true that the electricity and the networks were cut off, so it may be that many people were also stranded in remote places or in their houses and could not be reached. But it's also true that the number, uh, I mean, of 10,000 missing was, was really high. So uh, we expect, unfortunately, these numbers to go up. Of course, only being on the ground will make uh, a difference. So we are really working with the authorities to ease all the, you know, uh, to facilitate all the access, and they've been really uh, great at allowing us to, to 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 respond. So for now, it's also the issue of you know Libya was transitioning out of humanitarian uh, response, and so as you know, we don't have a lot of supplies and a lot of resources at this time being, because you know our response was more development oriented. So now we're focusing on getting those resources on the ground as soon as possible. Uh, Salah, l let me ask you, uh, first of all, how will Libya actually be able to deal with this disaster? And also, is Libya actually prepared or equipped to deal with, with devastation uh, of this magnitude? No, absolutely not. Libya is not prepared in, in any way for such a disaster. Uh, this probably is unprecedented in, in, in recent Libyan history. Uh, uh, under circumstances of split governments and lack of infrastructure and lack of preparedness. The city of, uh, of Derna just uh, 24 hours ago formed an emergency committee to deal with the disaster. Uh, and now we have these numbers, fantastic numbers, uh, coming out. Uh, and uh, I don't think there is anything on the ground to help the people of Derna, and they are relying on their own to help themselves, and no government help has come so far. Uh, Salah, l let me also ask you, uh, how much do you know so far about what conditions are currently like in Derna? I mean, has any international aid actually been able to make it there as far as what you've heard? I, d I didn't uh, uh, hear from uh, uh, relatives uh, that are in Derna and friends uh, anything about uh, uh, aid coming in. People are concerned, uh, like your uh, previous guest suggested, about the number of uh, uh, missing. Uh, the phones uh, don't answer. And uh, the death uh, toll is rising uh, uh, every uh, hour or so. Uh, and people can't do anything about what they see. Uh, the disaster is, uh, is, is just tremendous. And no one is uh, is helping uh, the the uh, the the government. The government told them to uh, 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 set a curfew, and people had to stay in their houses instead of giving them uh, uh, instructions on how to evacuate before the disaster hit. So this is the magnitude of uh, of government complacency and government failure to deliver on basic needs of people of safety. Uh, Anas, you heard Salah there a moment ago talk about the fact that Libya has two rival governments. I, I want to ask you, how much more does that complicate the picture? How much more does that complicate rescue efforts? Uh, does that complicate aid delivery efforts? It certainly does. It complicates all those things that you've mentioned. But I would like to add, first and foremost, that this is not just an act of God. It's not just Mother Nature being evil and cruel, as many might try to paint it. Meteorologists gave us days alert ahead of, ahead of time from Greece, where that storm killed six people. So we had days and hours ahead of this to be able to prepare, because there are 
responsibilities that go across those two rival governments, but it's the local councils, it's the local authorities that are responsible for that. And it's the Libyan National Army, Khalifa Haftar's own forces that were responsible for what unraveled in days. They had, unlike those in Morocco, where the tectonic plates moved and they had seconds to prepare for it, they had days and hours as the dams began to swell and flow up very slowly. They had days and hours to be able to plan an evacuation. They didn't raise the alert. In fact, they did the opposite, and they told people to stay indoors. So this isn't just the evil of, uh, of, of Mother Nature. This is the evil of men. It's the, it's the incompetence and the complacency of men that have enriched themselves for the last decade, waging war on Derna, which they did in 2018, where they left, according to Amnesty, a quarter dead, injured, or in jail, displaced. And today, another quarter of the city is underwater. And so the stench of those dead bodies that is reeking around there is not Mother Nature's fault. It's man's fault. It's these two individual, it's these two rival factions. It goes into them as well because they can't coordinate. The only times that they have coordinated, despite their conflict and their competition, is that when they're cooperating and collaborating about making Libya's eighth interim government in less than a decade. And it does come to elections because the elections are important, not on a national level, but at a local level. Elections were planned there, local elections, over several weeks ago, and they were blocked by the Libyan National Army because they didn't want anybody but military rule. There's military rule for you. There's the incompetence of fat old men with mustaches that have been eating donuts whilst Libyans are floating across the streets of eastern Libya. The reason why they can't coordinate now with international relief organizations and using Libya's wealthy, vibrant civil society is because there is no civil society to speak of in Denmark because most of them were in jail or most of them were displaced. So Anis, let, coordinate with Anis, let me also ask you, you're talking specifically about Derna, and I, I want to ask you, even before the storm, what was the infrastructure like there? I mean, how, how prepared or ill-prepared was a place like Derna for a storm of this nature? Number one, that dam that we're speaking about was built in 1977 by Yugoslav engineers. Yugoslavia is not a country anymore. It hasn't been maintained under the former Gaddafi regime. It certainly hasn't been maintained under the Libyan National Army, who, according to Global Initiative, have been scrapping Libya's public infrastructure, the infrastructure that is supposed to make sure that that water goes under the city, not over the city. They've been scrapping it into scrap metal that they have exported to the tune of a billion dollars every year since 2018. That is the, that is the, that is the relationship to the individuals that are not only governing that city, but have actually plundered that city and made sure that when the event did take place, it not only took the city with it, it took the lives of a quarter, potentially, of that city, because a quarter of it is under underwater today. And it also comes into the UN into the UN's own coordination as well. The UN humanitarian coordinator, Georgette Gagnon, last week came under storm on Twitter for having blocked human rights activists from the east of Libya and the west of Libya, so they're also to blame. It also comes to the west. They've been giving courtship and giving red carpet treatment to these individuals for a decade. UN leadership today, like Batili, has been shaking hands with individuals like Khalifa Haftar and like those that are responsible for this, the Defa al-Madani, the fire, fire engines and the fire supply that have been benefiting from hundreds of millions of funding from the Tripoli government. Where's their hundreds of millions today in Eastern Libya? Why are they shaking hands with war criminals and blood-soaked criminals like Khalifa Haftar and trying to repackage them and recycle them for elections that will never happen mm. after um, a decade of this? Those local elections could have saved lives. Let's, let's, let's not forget that minor point. This isn't a luxury, it's a necessity, because today Libyans could have chosen the leadership that would have taken accurate, responsible, and responsive actions, and instead, well, they've been left alone to, to float in the streets of Derna. 
Salah, from, from your point of view, uh, is there any chance that this particular crisis could be uh, a catalyst for any type of political unity going forward, or is it only going to fuel this rivalry, this division even further? I, I, I hope something good uh, comes out of this uh, disaster. I mean, we see, uh, uh, we see uh, private uh, cars and trucks uh, carrying uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, materials to help the affected. Uh, and it's, uh, 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 it's a, a popular uh, uh, movement that's uh, creating this. Hopefully, this will uh, solidify the feeling among Libyans that they were brother, they are brothers and sisters, and uh, in, ter in uh, times of uh, trouble they will come together. However, I doubt that the uh, uh, competing uh, political and military uh, powers in Libya will uh, will learn any lessons from this, except that they have to hang on to power for as long as they can, and uh, we 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 see the display of this when Haftar calls a meeting and chairs a meeting, meaning of, of the government officials uh, uh, that are supposed to be responsible for providing aid. And the prime minister is sitting there like a student in a principal's office listening to a, 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 a fake general giving orders and instructions and parting his wisdom as to how to deal with disasters and how to prevent disasters. That's the, the way they dealt with this problem. This is the, that's the way they dealt with it before it happened, and now they are continuing that. So uh, I don't see uh, any positive thing uh, politically coming out of this, but maybe it will help Libyans understand that they need to move against the political class that has uh, presided over the country for the last 11 years. Michele, if I could just ask you, it's been pretty widely reported in the past that humanitarian aid groups in Libya have really been chronically underfunded for a, a long time. And, and I just want to ask you, from your perspective, how, how does that hamper a response that is needed at a time like this? I mean, what kind of impact does that have on a response at such a time of crisis? No, as I was just saying, we were shifting uh, out of pure humanitarian, just keeping, you know, some preparedness and some response to, you know, uh, lower level conflict, right? So a lot of emergency funding is no longer there. The cluster system was, you know, phasing out. So uh, on that front, it's true that we don't have the same resources that, you know, Yemen would have or, or Sudan at this point in time. Um, at the same time, it's also true that we need to get out of the politics now and think about responding because there are a lot of people in need of help. Uh, in the affected areas. So uh, we have access, we need to get there, we need to, yes, the civil society is not, I mean, there are not plenty of uh, non-governmental organizations on the ground, but it's also true that there are means and the government has also quite resources compared to other governments to, to respond. So we are here as UN to, you know, help. And as UNICEF, we are thinking of, you know, the immediate life-saving needs of children, I'm talking about, you know, shelter, safe drinking water, medical supplies, family tracing, all of that needs to happen in the in the days to come and quite fast. So, yes, we appeal for the donors to provide resources because it's a, the scale is beyond the current capacity that we have, the current, uh, you know, supplies even that we have. 
Um, we will do a flash appeal most likely as United Nations, but um, of course we also count on internal resources uh, to, to, to support us. Uh, Michele, let me also ask you about the fact that, you know, aid groups are saying that tens of thousands of people may be displaced at this point. You were talking about the magnitude of the potential displacement crisis uh, going forward just a little bit earlier. Um, there's a fear that they wouldn't have any prospect of being able to return home. I mean, what are the major concerns right now when it comes to those that have been displaced, reaching them, uh, getting them the kind of aid, medical help, food that they might need? So in terms of immediate life-saving, as I said, um, it's about what resources are moved now and what supplies can be moved in as, as fast as possible. So as UN, we are quite used to do that. In terms of reconstruction, that's another story. That would mean, uh, you know, more longer-term resources, for sure. Um, there was a reconstruction fund also for Dern and Benghazi, so we count on that to be, you know, fully operational and then applied, because as I mentioned, there will be not only schools to be rebuilt, but also water systems, also health facilities. We know that several hospitals and clinics are totally destroyed. So um, the reconstruction that comes later um, requires resources that are um, beyond the current scale, requires, um, you know, even development banks. So I know that there have been discussions also including those financial institutions that can look at this. Libya internal displacement, um, you know, in the last years, they reduced quite a lot of internally displaced people. The number went down. And, and so it was almost, you know, um, you know, half of what it was a couple of years ago. But at the same time, this is, you know, another big challenge in terms of uh, reconstruction. You're right, especially from a shelter and, and housing point of view, but also for all essential services. So, Yes, we need financial institutions to, to come in uh, for those longer-term resources. Uh, Anas, uh, let me ask you, from your perspective, is there any group, is there anybody either from within Libya or, or from outside that would be able to effectively handle overseeing an aid effort right now? No. It's a short answer. But no, because there are lethal failures that happened ahead of this, and that's what we have to focus on, because they're the same structural and systematic failures that are going to uh, hamper and going to cripple any attempt to be able to coordinate what requires search and rescue efforts, that will require water and sanitation, that will require psychological support, that will require the very least international experts that will help in these critical hours now to try to find those that may still be alive. But as the hours go down, the chances of them surviving are going to be very, very little. Those that are going to be displaced from this also need shelter. And so it needs something of epic proportions because what just happened was a biblical proportions. A quarter of the city is underwater. I mean, it's it's something that we don't see in, in normal cities because normal cities are built to withstand these kind of things when they have infrastructure. There is no infrastructure to speak of. And it's, it's the collapse of all of the other cities around it. It's the water that came from southern cities that was piling on for days. Those cities are still affected. The eight convoys that are moving across the country no one deserves a pat on the back. They're going to be there hampered by the rain for hours and hampered by the roads for hours. There is one road that leaves in, Dahar al-Hamad. It's the only road that leaves in. And imagine the only road that leaves in was the only road built by smugglers because the smugglers are the ones that have their roads built and civilians don't. It's these kind of systematic lethal failures that we have to start focusing on now because they're the same that will cripple it. The international community can't shirk its responsibility. It spends money on trying to keep Libyans and migrants in Libya using search and rescue efforts to push them back onto the shore of funding detention centers in Libya, but it is not, and it is absolutely not available now. 
Where are the European Union efforts? Where's the Western efforts? The next time that we see a European Union official going to shake one of those hands, remember, they're shaking hands with blood on them. So they have blood on their hands as well. So this is, there's a reason. This is not about making it political. It's about shirking the responsibility from those incompetent officials, those that have blood in their hands, and those that are allowing these watery graves that we see now in Debna to perpetuate. There are still thousands more that are going to suffer if they don't start acting now. It's the urgency of the matter that needs to be fixed. Mm. If they still try and work within these kind of broken structures, it's not going to work. International efforts should be coordinated by internationals, and they shouldn't coordinate with those local authorities because they're incompetent. They need to try to work with individuals that are there. We have the numbers. There are people sharing mm. them across social media. There are groups now like Dead in a Zoom, for example, on Facebook, that is coordinating the lists of those dead, and they're writing them on school books. That tells you about the level of coordination of these rival factions. And then said the rival factions themselves are putting out press statements or putting up videos of themselves clearing up roads with rocks and putting it to military parade music. That tells you about the priorities of these, these kind of rival factions. Don't ignore them. We need international responses to try and work on them. Mm. Greece, which has already been able to deal with this and has a great relationship with the government in Eastern Libya, where is the Greek support? Where is the European Union support? Why is the money only there when they're trying to help uh, people are trying to die on the Asian Sea or trying to die in the Mediterranean Sea. Why is it not there when Libyans need them the most? Salah, um, I want to talk more about the, the rivalries going on uh, inside of Libya. The country has two governments. Uh, they each have their own resources. They each would have their own approach, one would assume, to how to respond to this disaster. Is there any clear sense at this stage as to who exactly might lead the response? Who would be in charge of trying to deliver aid? Well, uh, look, I mean, Libya is, is unique. Its conflict is unique in a very particular way, is that the central bank of Libya in Tripoli is bankrolling both governments. The two warring factions are being bankrolled by the central bank of, of Libya and Tripoli. That's how uh, Haftar is paying his soldiers, and that's how Beba is paying his soldiers. Uh, now, the, the question is that uh, nobody wants to give any credit uh, to the other or give him a chance to get credit, and this might get in the way of helping people that are affected. Uh, and de and delay uh, uh, any help. Uh, so uh, so the, the the split government is a fact. Uh, uh, the Beba government, the uh, the international recognized government, was denied entry into the east of Libya. Few weeks after it it got a, a vote of confidence by 132 votes, and two abstentions. After refused to let the, uh, the government enter the East. And now, uh, I guess, maybe he, under pressure, he may allow uh, uh, convoys of uh, help from uh, civilians, from uh, non-profit organizations and so on, to enter the East and go to Derna. But the problem now is, the, like uh, Anna suggested, is the research and rescue operation, which Libya has no expertise in, never exercise it, but on a small scale. Mm. This is a, a huge uh, problem now. Salah, and of immediate uh, worry. So, uh, so we, don't, we don't know who's going to help with that. Salah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, we just have a minute left. Uh, I see that Anas is raising his hand and wants to get a point in. Anas, please be brief. Be mindful of the fact we just have one minute left. Please go ahead. 
if we want to try and get money out of the central bank today in Libya, which has billions and billions of dollars that have been accumulated from Libya's massive oil wealth, then the first thing that we need is a parliamentary law to be able to give us some kind of emergency funds. The parliaments themselves have been agreeing to disagree and failing to make any kind of laws that will re reply and respond to this kind of uh, disaster or have been blocking elections for the last 10 years. They need to be able to pass a law so that we can have an emergency budget to deal with this. The money that they take out of that budget should be given to international uh, agencies like the IRC, mm. like the like the USEP, and they should be trying to bankroll this. Sorry, mm. Libyan Libya should be bankrolled but should not be leading the efforts. Internationals to be leading the efforts. Libyans have shown themselves to be incompetent enough in, in bringing this disaster to light. All right, Anas, I'm going to have to stop you there. We have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there today. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Salah al-Bakush, Anas al-Gomati, and Michele Servade. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Katya Lopetodoyan, Pongi Nguyen, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Santil Marimutu. The program was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Zainab Badr, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode. Coming up in The Take, after weeks of controversy, the head of Spain's Football Federation has resigned, but the players' fight for equal treatment continues. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.